Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're cash only. (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about caches, as in hidden stuff that people tucked away for one reason or another. We saw a news story this week that reminded us that there are tons of stories about discoveries of cached material all over the world. And there's all sorts of reasons why someone might hide stuff away. Um, Amber, can you think of any cached material sort of off the dome that... Um, There was that... um, time capsule that was buried in the floorboards of Joe's house in that episode of Wishbone. Not quite what I was thinking of, <laughs> but probably <laughs> you've literally the first thing I thought of. <laughs> I'm sure you've just, uh, and then there was that, that old tiny dude with the uh, Parmesan. Yeah. Well, uh, those are the two things I thought of. <laughs> okay. Great job. Uh, the first one, I think you've just caused a whole lot of our listeners to go, Oh yeah. But um, the second one, what you are thinking of, is the renowned diarist Samuel Pepys and his Parmesan cheese that he hid. Uh, He buried it in the ground during the Samuel Pepys. Yeah, he um, so Parmesan at that time in like the 16th century was tremendously valuable. It was this hot import from Italy from Parma even. And um, he had a wheel of Parmesan that probably cost him like, you know, three years wages of a normal working person. But he had his wheel of Parmesan during the the Great Fire of London. And uh, before he ran out of his house to go to safety, he made sure to bury his wheel of Parmesan in in the back garden um, to keep it safe. Although, I don't know, he was essentially creating like Parmesan en croute. Like, it would turn, if it got burned, it would, it would sort of fondue. But, um, no, I, I, (laughs) as far as I know, it, uh, it worked out. I don't know. I think it worked out. Anyway, um, caches might be made for several different reasons. One, like Samuel Pepys, to keep your stuff safe, right? Either because you know that you have to run away quickly and you know where you bury stuff and you'll come back for it and hopefully no one steals it in the interim. Uh, you might cache things for religious reasons, so as, as an offering. Uh, you might cache stuff just because you know you're going to come back to that area and you want to store some stuff, right? It could be anything like that. And the great thing about some of these caches is that sometimes, hundreds or thousands of years later, people find them. People like like randos and archaeologists. Uh huh. And so let's focus on the archaeologists. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, like just ethics. Public service announcement: um, If you do come across what you think might be some some cached archaeological material, call a museum. Call an archaeologist. Don't touch it. 
Yeah. You know, you know at least two now. Let's get started. Um, let's get started with that news story that got us here in the first place. Yeah. Well, okay. So did you ever, um, when you were growing up, did you ever read the Asterix comics, Amber? Nope. Okay. So they were originally a French series started in 1959, not by the same author, but definitely in the same vein, although slightly less problematic than Tintin. Tintin. Um, but they've, Tintin. um, but they've been translated into English and I'm sure other languages. And I truly love the Asterix comics. I read them when I was a kid. I've read some relatively recently and the jokes are so funny. And especially now that I'm reading it, you know, I'm no longer nine-year-old me and I'm reading, if I read them again, like there are some jokes in there that are not for nine-year-olds, which I love. And they center on Gallic warriors living at the time when Julius Caesar was working on taking over Gaul. So each Asterix comic starts with the following introduction. The year is 50 BC. They don't say BCE. Maybe I should, the year is 50 BC. Gaul is entirely occupied by the Romans. Okay, I won't do that. Well, not entirely. One small village of indomitable Gaul still holds out against the invaders, and life is not easy for the Roman legionaries who garrison the fortified camps of Totorum, Aquarium, Laudanum, and Compendium. So all of the jokes are kind of in this vein. It's real, just making <laughs> oh, fun of Nerd. Latin. No, I know. you have. So it's, it's so nerdy, and it's my favorite thing. The series follows the adventures of a village of Gauls as they resist Roman occupation in 50 BCE. They do so <laughs> by means of a magic potion <laughs> brewed by their druid, who in the English versions is named Getafix, <laughs> but in the French versions is named Panoramics. Um, and the, the potion temporarily gives the recipient superhuman strength. So the protagonists are the title character, Asterix, and his friend, Obelix, and they, they have adventures. So the, the Ix ending of those names and the other Mediepi Gaulish names that are, that are punny, um, in the series that alludes to a real, uh, naming convention in, Ga in the Gallic languages, Gaulish languages, I suppose. And typically those names end in Rix, which means king, which actually I was kind of wondering if those could be related, you know, cause Rex is king in, uh, in Latin, right? No, Greek? Rex is Greek? king in Greek. Greek. I, I was thinking Latin and... Rex Regis. That's right. I was about to have a galaxy brain moment. <laughs> and then you got your classical languages. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I had a brain fart. But anyway, the, so a lot of real known Gaulish chieftains had that Rix ending in their name. So Vercingetorix or Getorix, Dumnerix. Ah. Yeah, so the comic takes advantage of that to great effect. Um, so in any case, this news story from The Telegraph, the newspaper in the UK, is about a cache recently discovered in England, and it really leans heavily on the Asterix connection. I, I like the idea that like this story could have come out through Telegraph. No, that's Telegram. I was like the encrypted... <laughs> messaging service no no telegram is a is a thing now oh it's it's used it's like an end-to-end -end encrypted messaging service that's used a lot in iran and like places where there's um, oh never mind where conversations might be monitored yeah. yeah and then it's also used by white nationalists Alrighty. go on cool okay so this is this is from that telegraph article 
the grave of a real-life asterisk containing what is believed to be an ancient Gallic warrior who came to Britain and fought Julius Caesar has been discovered, archaeologists have announced. <laughs> the unique... <laughs> The unique and highly elaborate resting place was found on a West Sussex building site. The Iron Age warrior, buried with his glamorous and ornate headdress, and it's really cool, it's this amazing, like, metal filigree crest, but it's it's open work, like, it's, like, this sort of wrought, thin wrought metal, uh, we'll put pictures up on our social media, it's really cool looking, but it, it was a crest that must have stood at least a foot above his helmet. Um and so this this warrior is thought to have been a refugee French Gallic fighter who fled Julius Caesar's legionnaires as they swept across continental Europe around 50 BCE. The burial also incidentally included a bent sword, which is a typical thing to do in Celtic Gallic ritual deposits, uh, along with burial deposits. So you basically you kill a sword before you bury it with someone uh, or before you dedicate it to the gods, which means that you bend it so it can't be readily used again um so it can't be used as an actual sword which is which is kind of practical if you're going to dedicate a sword first of all you don't want it to some you know be a freebie for someone you know like free sword in the ground um but you also you know so that so that whatever you're offering you know is clearly you are offering it you're making it not usable to you right so you're you're killing it you're you're transferring it over to Whatever other place of existence, the dead, wherever the dead go, you're sending the sword there too, essentially. That's the idea. And that's not the only place we see that. It's, um, often you see pots that have been killed as part of ritual deposits. So like a hole has been smashed in them. So they're not useful as pots anymore. So they've been essentially, it's thought, ritually killed to also sort of transfer them over to the land of the dead. So. Archaeologists have described the discovery, which incidentally will go on display at Chichester's Novium Museum in January 2020 as, quote, the most elaborately equipped warrior grave ever found in England, end quote. The grave was found during excavations ahead of a housing development in North Bursted in 2008, but it is... What? (laughs) North Bursted. No, no, no. What was that noise you made when you tried to say it? North Bursted. I think it's in. I think it's in the north, which would mean it would be a northern accent, which I can't really do. So why do I even try? No, you can't. North, north, <laughs> in North Bursted in 2008, but it has taken years of conservation and scientific analysis to prepare the artifacts for display. Dr. Melanie Giles, senior lecturer in archaeology at the University of Manchester, said, It really is absolutely a unique find in the British Isles and in the wider continent. We don't have another burial that combines this quality of weaponry and Celtic art with a date that puts it around the time of Caesar's attempted conquest of Britain. Continuing the quote from Dr. Giles, We will probably never know his name. He is either someone from Eastern England who may have gone and fought with the Gauls. That, we know, was a problem for Caesar. We were allies with the French, helping them with their struggle against him. Or he might be a Frenchman himself who flees that conflict, possibly a real-life Asterix, and coming to us, just as in Asterix in Britain, to lend us aid in terms of the knowledge he has about strategy, tactics, he knows Caesar is going to try to divide and rule. Also, he brings with him his kit, extraordinary weaponry, a beautiful sword, which is not like the swords we have, a new technology, style and design, and helmet, which is absolutely unique with these wonderful Celtic openwork crests, which exaggerate his height and make him absolutely fabulous. <laughs> now I can okay. only think of the TV show, Absolutely Fabulous. Like, oh, hello. 
Well, I will see your trove of warrior swag, and I will raise you a cave full of drugs. Hey! <laughs> yeah, um, this one comes to us from a story in Science Online. Ah, la science? I first saw, la science, uh, that I first saw when my friend from grad school, who was a member of the team, started sharing coverage of their work. What up? Um, I know, right? Ugh. I'm like a 20 feet from stardom over here. Um, and so this research was uh, published in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. Panas! Panas. <clears throat> so I'm going to read this from. There is science. in the first paragraph something that uh, I'm very excited for you to see. So please continue. <laughs> okay. When Jose Capriles arrived in 2008 at the Cueva del Chileno rock shelter, nestled on the western slopes of Bolivia's Andes, he didn't know what he would find within. Sweeping aside layers of fresh and ancient llama dung, he found the remains of an ancient burial site, stone markers suggesting a body had once been interred there, and a small leather bag cinched with a string. In what was that sound? I don't know. I, I put my can of seltzer down very hard no i don't um, think it was that i don't know go ahead <laughs> inside was a collection <laughs> inside was a collection of ancient drug paraphernalia bone spatulas to crush the seeds of plants with psychoactive compounds wooden tablets inlaid with gemstones to serve as a crushing surface a wooden snuffing tube with a carved humanoid figure and a small pouch stitched together from the snouts of three foxes <laughs> As a snoop pouch. As a snoop pouch. Oh, gosh. Woof. Oh, gosh. Well. I know. Um, well, you can go you can You can go see that, that snoop pouch. pouch. We'll link to it. The snouts of three it, boxes. It is inescapably website. exactly that in the picture. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, just like three now, little nosies. more than a decade later... Capriles, an anthropologist at uh, Penn State, and colleagues have discovered that the thousand colleagues, including my friend Molly, uh, discovered that the 1,000-year-old bag contains the most varied combination of psychoactive compounds found at a South American site, including cocaine and the primary ingredients in a hallucinogenic tea called ayahuasca. The contents suggest that the users were well-versed in the psychoactive properties of the substances and also that they sourced their goods from well-established trade routes. Which is cool. Nearly every culture on Earth has dabbled with consciousness. No. Oh, no. consciousness and perception-altering substances. Just everyone, like, <laughs> in early stages, sitting around a fire like, do you guys think we should, I don't know, dabble with consciousness? <laughs> You guys think? One more again. One more again. Um, <laughs> okay. Nearly every culture on Earth has dabbled with consciousness and perception altering substances. Um, and you can learn about some of those if you become a Patreon supporter at the Dirt After Dark level, because we did an episode on just that. We sure did. Now, indigenous groups from Central and South America have used hallucinogens as such as peyote and psilocybin mushrooms during rituals and religious ceremonies for thousands of years. Archaeologists have uncovered hundreds of items that provide a glimpse into these ancient practices, but few are as complete as the Bolivian find. And I don't think they have snoot pouches. For better or worse, they don't have snoot pouches. Cool, cool, cool. 
The researchers analyzed the residues of materials in the cache and identified at least five psychoactive substances, including... Yep, sorry. Cocaine. <laughs> benzoyl... Echonine. Benzoylic... Gonine. <laughs> Benzoylic gonine. Sure. Bufotenine. wonder if that comes from frost. Yeah. Harmine. And dimethyl tryptamine. Sure. Cool. Harmine, harmine and dimethyl tryptamine are the main ingredients in ayahuasca, used ceremonially for centuries by indigenous South Americans and used contemporarily by people at Burning Man. Yep. Miller says their presence alongside the stuffing tube and tablet may mean that people inhaled these chemicals long before they were brewed into a beverage. The research team also says it's possible that the mixture of compounds was unique to the region. The fact that at least two of the ingredients are known to be used in tandem in ayahuasca raises the possibility that the shaman who owned these materials was selecting plant combinations for specific mind-altering effects. Yeah, and that's really neat. So not only were they sourcing their materials from ostensibly a network of, of um, connected groups of people, but there's this real sort of deliberate almost... Um, like pharmaceutical knowledge hinted at by the specific mixtures of these chemicals. Yeah. I, I mean, there's definitely like a knowledge of pharmacology going on here. Yeah, I think so. And, and that's really neat to see. It's, um, it's really kind of rare to have a window into that kind of knowledge, I think, um, no matter where you are in the world, but it's, it's just neat. It's just neat. Okay, so um, this next one is related. We're really kind of jumping off of stories we've covered recently, which is nice. But uh, this one's related to our discussion of the peopling of North America, but not the hyena-ing. That's separate. So this is a cache of Clovis-style stone tools in what is now Colorado. So for a long time, the Clovis people, as so-called because the material culture was first found at a site in Clovis, Texas, um, they were thought to be the first people in the Americas, and they were identified by their very distinctive stone blades and projectile points. The projectile points have this really cool kind of fluted base. So once you're done making your little projectile point, your spearhead or your arrowhead, you then take two more flakes off of the base of it. And if you do it right, you take a, f a flake that goes right down the middle of the tool and it leaves this kind of nice little channel in the stone tool, which makes it easier to then haft that point onto the shaft of whatever you are trying to make pointy. Newer archaeological evidence has since upended the theory that the Clovis people were first in North America, what with the kelp highway hypothesis that we talked about and the, actually the Solutrean ice hypothesis that we didn't really talk about. But in any case, um, it's now pretty well accepted that people got to the Americas quite a bit earlier. But let's talk about this Clovis cache so this is from uh, an article that was published originally in 2009. More than 80 stone implements were discovered together in the Boulder city limits by landscapers. A biochemical analysis of the Clovis era stone tool cache indicates some of the implements were used to butcher ice age camels and horses that roamed North Aryans. Nope. <laughs> that roamed North America until their extinction about 13,000 years ago. 
This study is the first to identify protein residue from extinct camels on North American stone tools, and only the second to identify horse protein residue on a Clovis age tool. Isn't that what they found in um, like frozen lasagnas from Tesco? Yeah, a while ago. ago No, it was. It wasn't. I don't know. It was horse DNA. Horse protein residue. It was horse DNA. Yeah. So this Clovis tool was used to butcher a lasagna. Hey, I'm just trying to like provide some humor to our and you're doing our beloved listeners in the UK. And you're doing a bang up job. We see you. Hey, you are seen, mate. Okay. Um, the cache is one of only a handful of Clovis age artifact caches that have been unearthed in North America. So the Clovis culture is believed by many archaeologists to coincide with the time the first Americans arrived on the continent from Asia via the Bering Land Bridge about 13,000 to 13,500 years ago. Named the Mahaffey Cache after Boulder resident and landowner Patrick Mahaffey, the collection is one of only two Clovis caches, the other ones in Washington state, that have been analyzed for protein residue from Ice Age mammals. I see what you're highlighting, and yes, I will get there. Oh no, I'm sorry to inform you. You got bear. <laughs> That'll make sense in a second. Hang on. Let me get there. In addition to the camel and horse residue on the artifacts, a third item from the Mahaffey Cache is the first Clovis tool ever to test positive for sheep and a fourth tested positive for bear. Oh, no. Is it serious, Doc? I'm afraid it's bear. <laughs> Dozens. What? Yes. Bear is delicious. Have you ever had bear? I've never eaten bear. Have you? Yeah, of course. Um, of course. Well, how would I up? No, growing up in um, in rural Appalachia, my grandparents' church had um, every fall they did a wild game dinner. Oh, where it was like a potluck, but, but but people would make things that from animals they had harvested. Right, and so there, oh god, it was black black really bear. Good food. Yeah, okay. I just was. I don't think there are any other bear species you to local like, to your, your yeah. Why do right? you have to make it? A thing. No, no, no. I was just curious. So what? No, I was just curious about what kind of bear it was. Yeah. Well, but also some folks would go, um, they would go on like hunting trips, like out west and stuff. So there was like, I had like antelope. And cool. Bear. That's really cool. So and what elk. is, what does bear yeah. taste like? Kind of gamey. Well, okay. Um, it, it's just, well, so I had like meatballs made out of bear. Oh, okay. Because so I think maybe it's like kind of gamey to the point where you need to like, Hmm. Um, interesting but it tastes it's like a a all right you know how like some animals you eat and you're like that's exactly what i expected like alligator they're just like yep yeah that's what i thought this would taste like. yeah yeah it's like chicken lobster yeah alligator is yeah it's mm -hmm, like yes mm -hmm, it is a dinosaur mm -hmm. bird thing i'm gonna keep going Dozens of species of North American mammals went extinct by the end of the Pleistocene, including American camels, American horses, woolly mammoth, dire wolves, short-faced bears, saber-toothed cats, woolly rhinos, and giant ground sloths. While some scientists speculate Ice Age mammals disappeared as a result of overhunting, climate change, or even the explosion of a wayward asteroid, their reasons are still unresolved. <laughs> the Mahaffey Cache consists of 83 stone implements ranging from salad plate-sized, elegantly crafted bifacial knives and a unique tool resembling a double-bitted axe, so like a double-headed axe, to small blades and flint scraps. 
Discovered in May 2008 by Brant Turney, head of a landscaping crew working on the Mahaffey property, the cache was unearthed with a shovel. Okay, thanks, article. Under about 18 inches of soil and was packed tightly into a hole about the size of a large shoebox. And it appeared to have been untouched for thousands of years. So it's my understanding, this really isn't my area of expertise, but it's my understanding that a lot of times um, these are thought to be ritual deposits, but much more likely are just sort of like expedient deposits. Like it's, it's like, I'm going to need these later. And a lot of times actually the things that are buried aren't finished tools, but blanks so that you're like, okay, I know I'm going to come back here to hunt next season. So I'm going to leave these for myself and then, you know, sharpen them up and do what I need to do with them when I need them. So it's like a utility cache. So it's it's totally unclear the purpose of this particular cache, but um, there are a number of possibilities. So Amber, the one that we're going to talk about next sort of comes from your neighborhood, sort of, next door. But before we get there, yeah, we're going to take a quick break for some ads. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay. So um, I'm going to share something from a New York Times story mm-hmm. um, from 2008 about an art of a cache of African artifacts found in Maryland. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just a it's in your neighborhood ish train ride and then a expensive lift <laughs> from me. Great. Um, <laughs> over the years of exploring the old houses and streets of Annapolis, Maryland, archaeologists have uncovered a trove of artifacts of early American slave culture. Among them are remains connected with religious practices, which bear the stamp of the enslaved people's West African heritage. Early in the 18th century, as they were being baptized, African Americans clung to, quote, spirit practices, end quote, in rituals of healing and the invocation of ancestral and supernatural powers. Sometimes called black magic, these occult rites would persist in America in modified form later as voodoo and hoodoo. Archaeologists from the University of Maryland have discovered in Annapolis that what they say is one of the earliest examples of traditional African religious artifacts in North America. 
It is a clay bundle, roughly the size and shape of a football, filled with about 300 pieces of metal and a stone axe whose blade sticks out of the clay, pointing skyward. The bundle, found in April 2008 and dated to 1700, appears to be a direct transplant of African religion into what is now the United States. Project director Mark Filioni said, quote, The bundle is African in design, not African American. The people who made this used local materials, but their knowledge of the charms in the spirit world probably came with them directly from Africa. End quote. X-rays of the bundle's contents revealed an abundance of lead shot, iron nails, and copper pins. Frederick Lamps, curator of African art at the Yale University Art Gallery, which was not a part of the excavation, but was commenting on the finds, said, quote, some of the pens were bent, indicating this was a purposeful part of the ritual, end quote. Dr. Lamps added that metalwork, metalworked in fire was widely seen as having special power, and combining these materials in compacted clay was believed to increase the power of these objects. The practice, Lamps says, is well documented to this day among the Monde groups, principally in what are now Sierra Leone, Guinea, and Mali, and the Yoruba people of Nigeria and Benin. Nor should the Congo people re be ruled out as a source of these religious practices, scholars said. This culture, living in lands around the Congo River in Angolia and Kabinda, was a major source of African-American slaves. Congo bundles contain stones, shells, and other items that are supposed to hold the spirits of the dead for the use of the living in a custom that underlies voodoo. The Annapolis bundle, presumably made by a recent African immigrant, I take issue. With yeah, that. immigrant is a problematic word there. Yeah. Um, That's a real choice. Yeah. Well, presumably made by a person recently trafficked from Africa mm. to North America, yeah. was excavated four feet below Fleet Street, which is near the Maryland capital in the waterfront. The object is 10 inches high, 6 inches wide, and 4 inches thick. It remains intact, though an outer wrapping, probably of leather or cloth, has decayed, leaving an impression on the clay surface. The bundle is to go on display in 2008 at the African American Museum in Annapolis. The bundle's most striking component, the stone axe, was especially intriguing. Dr. Lamp said that this brought to mind the Yoruba and the Fon people of Benin, who considered the axe blade a symbol of Shango, their god of thunder and lightning. And so some, something to think about here. Yeah, um, the, um, see, this was in in the article, and it—I don't know—something uh, to chew over, I think. Yeah, so this is um, a further quote from uh, Mark Leone, mm -hmm. who said that the bundle's visibility suggested, quote, an unexpected level of public toleration, end quote, of African religion in colonial Annapolis. Most of the artifacts indicating that the practices were conducted in secrecy came from 50 years later. According to articles in a newspaper of the period, white people in Annapolis engaged openly in magic and witchcraft of the English variety. Yeah, so I mean, he just sort of said public toleration without really kind of backing it up, just the fact that this was in the open. Uh, and I, I know almost nothing about this stuff, so it just sort of yeah, was so like, huh, really? Yeah, so is if what he's saying is in the context of like a larger body of evidence, it's like it's weird talking yeah. about how f within fifty years of that they were doing everything. In no, yeah, no, I understand and that. So, it's just so, so like so it could be that this is this that there was a period of of tolerance or sort of permissiveness, right? And then something of, like oh, they'll do what they do, and so like when we talked about um, not. 
in no way am I saying that sort of the experience of um, like enslaved African people in North America is monolithic or that no, of course like, not. their descendants would have similar experiences. But remember when we were talking about view sheds and uh-huh. how um, they were doing um, like they were like, so the, what was that terrible term they used to describe people who like ran the plantations, the plantation? It, it, it was something that felt very euphemistic. Oh um, yeah. The, um, it was like the crop so, like, growers the white, or something. The white people, yeah. Yeah. It was just like the crop class or something. It was something gross. The uh, landed class. The people, yeah. So, um, those, the folks that had power and agency and owned other human beings. Woof were like cool with stuff until there was an uprising. And then they, because it's sort of like, it's not a problem until it's a problem sort of right, thing. Yeah. Um, and so after this certain point where in this case, there was a revolt among um, the enslaved people, mm, okay. they changed how it, it worked. And so I wonder if this is something, if what this article is referring to, and if we have, listeners that that know about leone's work or about this that could be that could be yeah if you if if you know that sort of this before period where they're very permissive because they didn't think that this it wouldn't be be a problem yeah an issue and then afterward when these things go underground is that um because you know like some of the conventional like the conventional with the stuff that's taught about um the experience of um, enslaved people in the U.S. being um, like having like hiding their own culture and narratives in sort of embedding it. Into, yeah, like subsuming like, spirituals it. and things like that. Yeah, so it's like, mm-hmm. is this something that like that becomes hidden and sort of becomes um, the culture itself the becomes a cache. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that feels like a, a good segue for the next thing. Yeah. So, I mean, as it turns out, caches can contain just about anything, even rockets. Ba-choo! So. What? Yeah. So recently. Is this our, did you just surprise me with our space? Space archaeology episode? <laughs> 38 <laughs> minutes into this episode. <laughs> Guess what? No, no, not at all. Okay, so... Guess what? No. (laughs) Recently, an interesting discovery was made in southern India following the recovery of more than 1,000 unexploded rockets from the 18th century by a group of archaeologists. So when I say rockets, I really mean explosive devices like missiles. The rockets were found in a well that once formed part of the Kamataka Federal State's Nagara Fort in an area that historically belongs to the Mysore Kingdom. The discovery itself was accidental, of course, as the well was being renovated when the workers found the stored weaponry. Can you imagine like, oh, oh, uh oh, (laughs) oh, that's a well full of explode. Yeah, there wasn't an episode of Wishbone about this. No, no, no. As for the stronghold with which that well was associated, it belonged to Tipu Sultan, 
an 18th century king of Mysore who defied the British East India Company for most of his adult life, finally falling a victim to battle in 1799 during the Fourth Anglo-Mysore War. After the conflict and the death of their leader, the rebellious kingdom succumbed to British rule. So fast forward to 2018 and an excavation of that well, which took place from July 25th to the 27th. <laughs> Brief. <laughs> Ex- <laughs> Maybe not an excavation so much as just like removing things from a well. (laughs) Excavation of the open well (laughs) led to the unearthing of over 1,000 corroded rockets that were stored during Tipu's times for use in wars. There is a strong possibility that this site was used as a storage point. Oh, yeah. Or a factory for the rockets. Um The rockets were discovered with traces of potassium nitrate, charcoal, and magnesium powder, bringing researchers one step closer to determining the exact chemical mixture which was used to propel the 12 and 14 inch long metal cylinders during battle. Among the thousand pieces of ammunition, the archaeologists managed to find parts of what seems to be some sort of an assembly machine used for rocket production. This sheds new light on the technology, which is considered to be the first ever successful use of rockets in warfare, pioneering the invention, which would not only influence the future of combat, but also the future of space travel. Therefore, Tipu Sultan's secret rocket stash has now become a hot topic among archaeologists and scientists who are curious as to how this weapon worked and how effective it really was on the battlefield. And I can just see people planning the experimental archaeology for this. It's like, how could this go wrong? (laughs) Kapow. Okay, Amber, I saved a very good one for you. Oh, I see you also saved a lot of check words for me. Yeah, Um, well, do your best. But that's okay, because this is the story that's going to bring us home this week, and it's got everything. It's got archaeology, a very good dog, and that's it. That is everything. It is. So a very, very good boy named Monty. Monty! 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 Recently unearthed a rare trove of Bronze Age artifacts near the Czech village of... Costaleke. Horky. Monty was walking with his human, identified as Mr. Francota, um, in a field when he began pawing frenetically at the ground. Soon, thanks to Monty's hard work, metallic objects began to emerge in the soil. <laughs> I can just the sort of imagine relics. like that, that sort of progression of emotions like, ah, uh, Monty, what are you doing? Oh. Monty? Monty? <laughs> See, that's like Calypso does that, and then it turns out that it's like half a cashew or something. Well, like, she's working her way up. A cashew? I know. A ca- cashew? <laughs> oh, it's a good pun. <laughs> You're a good girl. Um, the cache of relics includes 13 sickles, two spear points, three axes, and several bracelets. Yeah. So there'd at least, I mean, maybe the sickles were made of bacon, in which case Calypso would definitely. <laughs> She's very food motivated. <laughs> she is, yeah. Monty, however, <laughs> just wants to find art. Monty. <laughs> Monty's all about science. <laughs> metallic objects. Um, the objects have been dated to the Urnfield period around 3,000 years ago. This late European Bronze Age culture is marked by the transition from inhumation burials to cremations. The remains of the dead were interred in urns. 
giving the era its oh, name. Oh, finally, a straightforward name for a yeah. material culture period. Urnfield. See, Calypso, Calypso would find things dated to the Urnfield oh. period. Oh. Alrighty. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Urnfield culture first appeared in East Central Europe and Northern Italy, but eventually spread to Ukraine, Sicily, Scandinavia, and across France to the Iberian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. It's rare to find a cluster of intact Urnfield objects, according to a press release. <laughs> okay. Uh, Martina Bakova, an archaeologist at the Museum and Gallery of Orlike, who studied the objects after they were discovered by Monty, said, quote, The culture that lived here at the time normally just buried fragments, often melted as well. End quote. So she suspects that the relics were tied to a ritual. Um, and she said that it's most likely a sacrifice of some sort. Yeah, that seems Francota, like a good option. I don't know. Yeah. Francota Monty's person was awarded 7,860 Czech Corona. It's uh, around 360 bucks for his role in alerting archaeologists to the ancient treasures. Yeah, go boy. Can only, one can only hope that Monty was given many treats and pets for his superb field work. What a good boy. What a good boy. But that one has doggy CV. Oh, all right. My goodness. That was a good, that was a good one. Oh, it's a good story. It's a good story. See, I opened, I brought it full circle because I opened with a very good boy being Wishbone. (laughs) And I ended with a very good boy being Monty. Good job, bud. That's going to do it for us this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. We will be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which you can find everywhere that you find podcasts, including Spotify. Yeah. And I mean, we're also on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yes. Also, Apple Podcasts, Um, SoundCloud, Google Play. Are we le- we're leaving SoundCloud, aren't we? Yeah, sometime soon. You can help us out by leaving reviews and stars at all the relevant places. And thank you so much, everybody, for for joining us on this exciting journey as we join the Archaeology Podcast Network. Yeah, thank you for coming and along with us, and and for new listeners, yeah. welcome. Yeah, hi, hello, 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 hi, um, and also. Thank you for all of your well wishes and excitement about our book. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we should make a, an actual announcement maybe at the top of the next episode. But yeah, yeah, we're yeah. very excited for this project. We're really excited. Woo. We're so excited. It's going to be great. We're so excited. And it's all because of y'all. Thank you so much for letting us do this stuff that we love so much. We really do love what yeah. we do. And we do it for you guys. We do. And we do it for you. If you want to see news stories that we put up or uh, the silly comments that Amber leaves for me or the <laughs> the never-ending stream of DJ Khaled gifs, uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together. And if you want to see Calypso, if you want to see cats. our... Out. Yeah, I mean, if you want to see the podcasts or our third co-host Calypso, um, you can follow you can follow me on Insta. I'm at Amber Zambelli. Yes, if you want to see pictures of food and my cats, pretty much, you can follow me at Puppy Digs. Um, it's really on brand, honestly. <laughs> um, and uh, we also have a website. It's very nice. 
you can go there uh, to see all of this social media all together in one place. It's thedirtpod.com. And if you know things about the exp- the lived experiences of enslaved people in and their religious practices in the 1700s in America, um, or anything else that you want to bring up or ask us about, you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And we put out extra bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. We do like episodes and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also get episodes to bonus goodies like video content for as little as one, one, I repeat, dollar a month. A singular dollar. At, yeah. Yeah. At patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. And Anna, I just had a dream the night before last that you had texted me about doing something else that our that people could sponsor on Patreon where it's like sending a thank you gift to our interviewers. Oh. And people could sponsor that. And I was like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. But I was very confused. And then I woke up and it didn't exist. Well, we could talk about that. I also have some things to talk to you about, about incentivizing uh, Patreon support. But... <laughs> That great, is for that is for the next good good business meeting, everyone. Thank you all for joining us here today. Uh, and most of all, but this is actually like a really good lens into our business meetings where I'm like, I had a dream. And I'm just like, cool, how can we make that an action item? Great. I'm all about making your dreams come true, bud. And you listeners are making our dreams come true. Thank you for listening. We love you very much. Goodbye. We do. Fuck it. Bye. Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.